Welcome. You're listening to the New American Baccalaureate Project podcast. You're here with your host, me, James Anderson, and my co-host, Eli Kramer. And for the episode today, we'll be speaking with Mickey Huff. Mickey is a professor of social science and history at Diablo Valley College, located in the Bay Area in California. Mickey's also co-chair of the history department and chair of the journalism department at DVC. He's lectured in the field of communications at California State University, East Bay. He's also taught sociology and media at Sonoma State University. Mickey received his bachelor's and master's degree from Youngstown State University in Ohio. And Mickey's worked with the National Outreach Committee of Banned Books Week, working with the American Library Association at the National Coalition um, and the National Coalition Against Censorship. He's a founding member of the Global Critical Media Literacy Project, and he is president of the Media Freedom Foundation and the current director of Project Censored, current director of Project Censored, which he's described as a critical media literacy education organization. Project Censored is an organization that brings faculty, students, researchers, reporters, and others together to oppose and expose corporate media censorship, suppression, and omission of important news. And Project Censored and Mickey have also been vocal about opposing censorship, deplatforming, and the like on corporate social media and streaming platforms. Since 2009, Mickey has co-edited the annual volume of the Censored book series for Seven Stories Press. And along with Nolan Higdon, he co-authored United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation in Post-Truth America and What We Can Do About It, which was published by City Lights in 2019. And along with Andy Lee Roth, who's also involved in Project Censored, Mickey recently co-edited the Project Censored book, State of the Free Press 2021, the top censored stories and media analysis of 2019 through 2020. And he has a forthcoming critical thinking textbook, Let's Agree to Disagree, which he also co-authored with Nolan Higdon, and that should be out this year. And Mickey co-hosts the Project Censored show, a weekly syndicated public affairs program that Mickey founded with former Project Censored director Peter Phillips in 2010. It airs on KPFA in Berkeley, and you can find episodes of the Project Censored show at projectcensored.org. So let's go ahead and throw it to the interview with the inimitable Mickey Huff. You're listening to the New American Baccalaureate podcast. We're here with Mickey Huff. Mickey, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, it's a very kind of you. It's an honor to be on. We're going to go ahead and jump right into some of the questions that we have for you. Mickey, you're the director of Project Censored, which is an organization that exposes and opposes news media censorship, promotes independent investigative journalism and research, and provides a public pedagogy of critical media literacy to students and society more generally. So could you tell us a little bit more about Project Censored, about how you became involved in the organization, and about how you and others bring Project Censored into the college classroom? <clears throat> yes, I can. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about um, <clears throat> Project Censored, which is um, among the oldest, if not the oldest, sort of media watchdog and research organization in the United States um, under the Nonprofit Media Freedom Foundation, where I'm president. I'm the third director of Project Censored. Um, Project Censored was founded at Sonoma State University in 1976. So shortly after the Watergate scandal and right around the time that you saw more and more people questioning government and societal institutions, um, you know, we're coming up on the uh, Senator Church Committee hearings, the exposures of 
uh, COINTELPRO. Uh, this is, of course, in the wake of the scandals of the Vietnam War, um, Pentagon Papers. <clears throat> so it's an interesting time where Project Censored, um, when Project Censored was founded in Northern California, uh, communications scholar and sociologist Carl Jensen founded the project at Sonoma State University based on a really simple question that he asked his classes about media coverage of the 1972 landslide election of Richard Nixon, and then what was known afterwards about um, the scandals of the Nixon administration, which were many, uh, not just Watergate, but they were many. And <clears throat> Jensen fancied himself a pretty news savvy or media literate person. And so when he went back, he saw that there were other reports of the Nixon administration and corruption in the Nixon administration that predated the 72 election. And he wondered why it took as, as much time for the legacy papers or the legacy media, what we would now call corporate media, um, <clears throat> what others, I believe, erroneously call mainstream media with aerial quotes around it. We'll talk about that later, why we make the crucial distinction. But back then, we didn't have cable. We didn't have the Internet. Uh, there were you know, major urban newspapers um, and then there was the three networks and um, even public broadcasting was relatively new at that time. So Jensen asked the question, what if we knew more? What if we knew what the alternative and independent media had been reporting? And what if the Washington Post or the other media outlets reported it sooner? Would have it affected the 72 election? Would it have affected, uh, would Nixon have been pushed out of office sooner um, than 1974? And so the whole genesis of Project Censored is based on a news literacy question that later critical media literacy scholars really focus a lot of their research around. And that is, who, who controls our communication systems? Who asks the questions? Um, who frames the topics of the day that are very um, important to our democratic republic and into our society? So Project Censored was founded then as this research uh, class, if you will, where every semester, uh, Carl Jensen would have his students survey independent news media, and then they would look at what was being covered in the legacy media or the big media or what, again, I mentioned earlier, mainstream media, which is more corporate-owned media. And he would have them differentiate in the coverage, and he would create this list. He, he went out and got a whole group of scholars and journalists and um, you know very well-known people established in, in journalism and First Amendment studies and so on to act as judges so that they could help faculty and students vet stories and teach students how to be media literate at the same time. And he created this top list. And so over the years, Carl did this list and hooked up with Bruce Brugman and the independent alternative paper in San Francisco, San Francisco Bay Guardian, which was the oldest um, contiguously existing uh, independent city newspaper uh, for a long time. Um, and they would publish a top 10 of the list. And then the, the, the independent papers around the country would circulate that list. And so Project Censored started to get, I guess I'd argue, almost more of a cult following, right? Not in a negative sense, but I mean, it developed a, a fan base and, and, and among media savvy people, <clears throat> it started to draw a lot of attention. Not all of it positive. Many journalists thought Carl as a critic was being unfair, because back in the day, they only had so much time, so many column inches. Uh, and of course, as we later discover with um, Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky and Manufacturing Consent, <clears throat> advertising, ownership, you know, just capitalism in general um, really fuels a lot of the decision making that takes place in the news industry, despite the fact that it has protections of the First Amendment for the free press. And so um, <clears throat> the critics said, hey, um, we don't censor stories. We just don't have time to cover everything. And we exercise news judgment. 
And Carl said, you know what, that's a fair statement. So he started paying attention not only to what the corporate media didn't cover, he started to pay attention to what they did cover. And he found out they spent an inordinate amount of time covering what he called junk food news, a term that he coined in the 1980s. Um, so before I go to and, you know, give the whole history of the project here, you had also asked how I got involved. Um, I uh, got involved because I was very interested in media, history. Um, I grew up in a working class family in Pennsylvania where there was a strong interest in books and news media. My dad had a lot of periodicals like Time and Newsweek and Life magazine and uh, there were my it's interesting though because my parents were actually pretty apolitical but my dad really liked the news and like being you know what he thought would be informed you know what it meant to be informed and so I grew up around a love of books and information and I also grew up around a culture of well skepticism you know I, again working class family um, so we had you know kind of traditional family values and respect and these type things but um, my parents always told me, you know, that, you know, think for yourself, otherwise somebody else will gladly do it for you. <laughs> and uh, boy, did that become true in space. Um, so at any rate, you know, I grew up very curious and skeptical. Uh, I've been a musician for most of my life and I grew up playing a lot of speed metal and punk rock. And so I, I very quickly became attuned to the more iconoclastic tendencies and challenging authority and questioning what we're told um, so I really grew up interested in propaganda and censorship and art and music censorship. Uh, I was a critic of the PMRC, Parents Music Resource Center in the 80s, a uh, fan of Speed Metal and Jello Biafra and the Dead Kennedys. Jello Biafra used to use Carl Jensen's stories from Project Censored coming out of the Bay Guardian being a Bay Area group. And he used to highlight some of the stories in their song lyrics. So interestingly enough, I had a, an indirect introduction to Project Censored through Jello Biafra and the Dead Kennedys in the 1980s. And then I saw the first censored book in 1993 censored um, that Carl did. He did the first, first full length book and we've done a year, a book a year ever since. Um, and that just jumped off the shelf at me. And, and, and it really piqued my interest in when I was in college as a, as a music theory major, a history major, I really wanted to know the things we weren't being told and why. And I went on to study what wasn't known and wasn't discussed about the Kent State shootings and about cover-ups and controversies. And eventually it led me all the way to the left coast to Berkeley, California. And uh, the rest, as I'd say, is history. I started chasing around Peter Phillips and Michael Parenti. Uh, you know, Peter Phillips was the director of Project Censored. Second director took over in 97, Michael Parenti, a Marxist political scientist. I, I ran into them at a media expo at San Francisco State University. and. Uh, I really wanted to be part of Project Censored. And so over the years, I, I, I talked to Peter Phillips a lot, and he was a professional mentor to me. And I started teaching at the community college um, out here in the Bay Area, where I took my curiosity and my love of knowledge and my interest in questioning authority to other students, many of whom had very similar backgrounds as working class people. And so that's kind of the nutshell, uh, if you will, the Cliff's Notes version of both the project's history and my intersection with it. Uh, and can you describe the validated independent news stories, VINs, exercises that many professors now assign students and that Project Censored uh, publishes? Yeah, absolutely. Andy Lee Roth and I, <clears throat> Andy's been our associate director uh, going back a decade. Um, <clears throat> and Andy and I have done the book every year since 20, uh, 2012. Uh, we do it together. We're with Seven Stories Press out of New York. 
Um, we continue that tradition. And what you just described is the validated independent news story assignment. But let's remember, Project Censored isn't just an organization that 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 calls out these underreported censored news stories every year. We teach during the process. Right now, we have a, a campus affiliates program that we've been running for well over a decade where we have over 20 colleges. This year, we had over 300 students, over 30 professors, somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 30 professors. Uh, they researched over 300 stories that vetted, factually vetted them, uh, researched their media coverage, and put them on our annual ballot where our judges and our participants select that story. So the validated independent news assignment is how <clears throat> faculty can incorporate news media literacy into the classroom. And look, there's multiple levels of it. You can introduce it in junior high or in high school. Um, the best place we find to introduce it is an undergraduate college in critical thinking courses, media courses, comms courses, journalism courses. Um, really, it could be across the spectrum. You know, you could be teaching a, a, in a science class about science literacy, and you could talk about how the media impact the general public uh, awareness of science and what's going on and science writing. So <clears throat> validated independent news is a process by which we have students go out and survey independent non-corporate media. That doesn't mean nonpartisan or just objective. We can get into that problem later. There's, there's really no such thing as quote objective media. Um, that's a fine pretense, I suppose. It's certainly a laudable goal um, and to be transparent and to not cause harm and to report factually what's happening and let the public decide um, as the society professional journalists would talk about in their code of ethics. But the Validated Independent News assignment has students go out, locate stories in independent news, and then survey them uh, for their coverage in the corporate media. They're fact-checked, they're uh, checked over by faculty and area content area experts. So students are learning several different things along the way in the Validated Independent News story. And if they discover that the story that they're researching from an independent source is accurate, is very significant... Um, right, affects a lot of different people and demographics. It's not just sort of a a super hyper local story, but it might be a local story that has national or global implications. And then um, again, as I stated, the story gets written up. So students learn how to cite, they learn how to properly summarize, they learn how to use college and university databases to, uh, to look at independent news sites and to search news sites for content. And they learn how to analyze media um, in a way where they're asking key and critical questions about why is it that the New York Times may report, you know, amazingly on certain subjects, but why are they so woefully deficient in others, right? And so therein lies one of the key questions of critical media literacy. Who decides what gets written? What are the power structures behind our media institutions? How do we, the people, fit into that? What is the role of journalism, uh, the role of citizen journalism and healthy skepticism? So the whole validated independent news uh, assignment uh, really asks those kind of questions and puts them before students in a way that allows them to be in the driver's seat of ascertaining the veracity of the information that they take in. Mickey, we wanted to touch on another mode of media censorship that's relevant to the work that Project Censored does. So the intellectuals and the educators with Project Censored not only work to uncover and tell the stories that corporate media omit, overlook, and effectively censor, but you and others with Project Censored have also emphatically opposed or argued against corporate social media platforms and uh, other online streaming outlets and the like censoring users. 
So in relation to the latter, I just wanted to mention that I've drawn on a piece by Andrew Austin that was published at Project Censor not uh, too long ago titled Defending the Digital Commons, a Left Libertarian Critique of Speech and Censorship in the Virtual Public Square for a lecture that I've given several iterations of for a media studies theory and practice course that I've taught a few times at UC Riverside. And this all seems especially relevant now because uh, <laughs> right, Alan McLeod at Mint Press News uh, published a story February 1st titled, at first I thought it was a joke, and I think that's a quote from you, uh, mm-hmm. Academic Media Censorship Conference Censored by YouTube. And that was a conference that was hosted by Project Censored. And there were hours of it, I believe, that were up on YouTube, but that was mysteriously taken down without any rhyme or reason. And so I wondered if you could explain, well, maybe you could comment on that and also explain your position and the position of Project Censored when it comes to online media companies exercising censorious power over people on their platforms. And then in relation, I wonder, do you ever broach this particular topic in the college classes you teach? And if so, how do you go about doing that? And how do students react to the anti-censorship argument if you do? Yeah, I definitely do. So the last part of that question, that's mostly what I do in the classroom, critical reasoning and history, political economy. Um, You know, I teach upper division courses at Cal State University East Bay on propaganda, persuasion, moral economy of digital media. So absolutely. And Project Censored is an anti-censorship organization, um, which means we run afoul of various people and we sometimes find strange uh, strange bedfellows. so going back to the beginning part of the your question and statement with Andrew Austin, um, who I think is a great civil libertarian and scholar out of Green Bay, Wisconsin, um, and he's written some things with us. And he, you know, he wrote a very uh, impassioned defense of the First Amendment against deplatforming. Uh, and this was a couple years ago, right? When there was, you know, there was this has been an experiment for some time. And as we see, over half the public sees Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as sort of a news feed, even though it isn't, right? Uh, We have 55% of the public um, regularly going to these sources as if they're news sources, which means we have a lack of critical media literacy education in our society, that's for sure. Um, But um, this has been more and more problematic because the more and more that these social media companies subsume and enclose the so-called public sphere, uh, the more they exercise uh, what some scholars call market censorship, um, uh, and they, they found themselves in in, in various uh, sort of sticky situations with both Twitter and Facebook saying that it's not their job to curate and censor information on one hand, but then on another hand, they hire a whole series of so-called fact checkers, uh, programmers writing algorithms, uh, even Google spiking searches. So these tech companies really want it always right that benefit themselves they want to be seen as magnanimous and supporting the first amendment they don't want to be seen as censorious but on the other hand they don't want to be associated with odious ideas uh in society and so project censored's view on all of this is that first of all how did we get to a place where we have private unaccountable institutions controlling the public sphere that's the big question we need to helicopter out and analyze when we sit here and we talk about should Twitter be allowed to deplatform President Trump, you've already seeded a big part of the argument that Twitter has the right to exist and do what they're doing in the first place in a society based on First Amendment principles. And I have serious issue with that. 
I think that's part of the problem that we need to really peel back and we need to look at more carefully. Um, but more to your, your question, Project Censored uh, thinks and believes and has long stated that uh, censorship is anything that interferes with the free flow of information in a society that purports to have First Amendment principles. And of course, we're adherents to Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in the United Nations. Um, that means everyone has the right to, res- to not just transmit, the right to uh, say and express what they, they think and believe, but they have a right to be heard. And so when we get into the sticky situation of censorship and hate speech and the rest of these kinds of gray nuanced areas, we are on a slippery slope. Um, and I think, and I'm not saying that there aren't legitimate concerns for some kinds of speech and news and information, disinformation. Let's remember the First Amendment does have restrictions. Libel and slander, for example, are not permitted. Spreading falsehoods, inciting riots and panic. There's various things that, um, aren't necessarily acceptable or permissible legally under the First Amendment. But when we get into this marketplace of ideas and the problems of capitalism, those lines get blurred and people say, well, Twitter's allowed them to platform the president if they want to. Remember when Barack Obama wasn't allowed to have a BlackBerry phone? I mean, (laughs) we've come a long way uh, just in in (laughs) the last 15 years uh, where the president wasn't allowed to have his own gadget and stuff. And now we have have politicians that just bypass editors, publishers, and the media entirely and just go on these social media platforms. So we have to cede that we do have to cede that legally these platforms currently legally can curate information. But I would argue that we need to seriously address that problem because big tech censorship is very real. And when they did this a few years ago, the big tech companies were deplatforming wildly unpopular characters like Alex Jones and Infowars. Many liberals and even people on the left celebrated the deplatforming of Jones as a bigot, a disinformation agent, um, a serial harasser, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Sandy hoax denier, um, that kind of thing. And look, we've written about Jones for years. Uh, and we've written about the problem that Jones presents in infotainment or disinfotainment, if you will. But we've also warned against what censoring people like Jones means for other people and scholars in particular who argue matter-of-factly about various historical conspiracies that have turned out to be real, right? Like Watergate, for example. Um, we don't call it a conspiracy anymore because it was out and now it's called a scandal, or a crime, right? So there's a whole problem in our culture around language and who controls it. And censorship is a big issue around that. And I absolutely take that into the classroom. Uh, and I absolutely bring these arguments to the students and encourage them to think critically and independently about them. I'm not in the business of telling people what to think. I try to help people think more critically and independently, help them how to think critically and independently based on transparently sourced factual materials. So you mentioned now full circle that one of the reasons Project Censored opposes censorship is because censorship will backfire. It tends to draw undue attention to the things that someone wants to silence, number one. And number two, eventually it'll come around to bite yourself. (laughs) Uh, Eventually you will find yourself the victim of some censor somewhere, like we just did at Project Censored. And Alan McLeod, no, no surprise and no accident, is a media studies scholar. He actually wrote a book on the propaganda model 
and I have known Alan for a while, and um, I have known Manar Mahawash Adley and Mint Press News, and full disclosure, I'm actually on the nonprofit board of Behind the Headlines at Mint Press News that's loosely associated, but I specifically called attention to this story as Project Censored was a co-sponsor. It was put on by the Cal State University East Bay campus. Nolan Higdon, the professor, was the main organizer. We had key left coast organizers from UCLA, USC, um, a whole host of colleges, Diablo Valley College, journalism programs. You know, again, as I mentioned in the article, you know, this wasn't a keg party at Parlor. This was an academic conference with some of the biggest names in critical media literacy, including Sophia Noble, author of Algorithms of Oppression which is a book about YouTube censorship of various communities, minority communities, marginalized communities, communities of color, LGBTQ. By the way, Project Censored has covered LGBTQ censorship issues by YouTube and even a lawsuit by lawyer Peter Obstler going after them because YouTube has admitted that they personally didn't censor gay and lesbian channels, but their algorithms do. (laughs) So proving Sophia Noble's point. Nevertheless, um, I didn't want to write a story about how we were censored because it's not about us. It's not the project censored. We're not martyrs here. What we were in a position to do, interestingly, however, was call attention to how now these big tech algorithms can censor even very significant public academic conversations challenging big tech technopolistic authority and technocratic authority to determine debates and frame debates in the public sphere by disappearing the very critics and scholars of big tech communication control in the first place. So if you peel back the onion, this is a meta story that has extraordinary implications. And when Alan McLeod contacted YouTube, they turned around and said, well, we're going to make you prove a negative, prove that that channel existed in the first place. Well, look, you can't prove something that they disappeared. We have IP addresses. Nolan Higdon, the organizer of the conference, has proof that he uploaded the videos. Numerous professors, including myself, link to the videos in classes. I use these videos in Intro to Social Justice Studies. I use these videos in critical reasoning courses. Jeff Scher, one of the pioneering scholars of critical media literacy at UCLA, used them in his classes. And in fact, I believe it was Jeff Scher that called Nolan Higdon over December and said, hey, where did the Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas conference channel go? And Nolan said, what do you mean? And so that's how we found out that the channel was completely disappeared down the Orwellian memory hole, right? Victim of either some censor at YouTube or a censorious algorithm that didn't like something that was part of the conference. And um, we've tried to find recourse for it. They gave us no explanation no warning. Um, I know people that have been deplatformed from these sites and they get on probation or they get a warning or a finger wag or whatever. We got nothing. This and, and by the way, many sites have been purged like this over the last couple of years, but scant attention's been paid. And given that many of these sites are, are more on the left than right, even though the right has been crying foul very loudly lately after the 2020 election, if you go back, there's hundreds of sites that have been deplatformed, disappeared, censored, disabled, shadow banned, Google spiked, you name it. Um, and so this is an area that isn't just about left or right. It's about right and wrong. 
and censorship in any guise, we believe the project censored is a real problem. So if you want to learn about this story, you can go to mintpressnews.com. And by the way, if you want to look more at our curriculum and the work we do at Project Censored, including our weekly radio show, our current documentary, Fighting the Fake News Invasion, you can go to projectcensored.org. A good deal of our information, our curriculum, our critical media pedagogy is there online, available to teachers, scholars, students, etc., for free. Um, so I'm happy to get into more detail about any of those facets of that very uh, well thought out and detailed question you asked, but I want to give you a chance here to sort of step in. I don't want this to be a monologue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's obviously a, a big and, and difficult thorny subject there. I guess it's kind of at least a little bit of follow up to think more about this. Do you, I mean, have a sense of what the uh, ameliorative path is out of the woods? Because in some way, what I hear from a number of organizations in terms of this kind of necessary space for free speech and kind of as vital as a civil liberty, on the other hand, kind of everyone's distinctly aware that both because of the way social media present has run amok in our life and the way both algorithms kind of feed and develop fake news and other things. And then, of course, very intentional programs from places like Cambridge Analytica, I guess, Mm -hmm. maybe the, the way to put it this way is what besides simply protecting the space for civil liberties, what else needs to be done given the kind of thorny situation which we find ourselves, which it seems clear that free space itself is not enough anymore, partially because that space has been taken over by other things, and partially because of our own lack of critical media literacy. And I guess the final way to put it is given the situation we're in, where should we be looking for for resources to get out? So neoliberal privatization and enclosure of the commons has been going on for the better part of a half century. Um, It's negatively impacted the public sphere from everything from education to journalism. Um, And Nolan Higdon and I wrote about this in the United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation and Post-Truth America and What We Can Do About It, our 2019 book from City Lights. Um, And we argued about how this winnowing of the public sphere would have very catastrophic consequences and that Donald Trump's presidency was a symptom of the winnowing and controlling and hyperpartisanship of the public sphere for infotainment and profiteering and distraction. Um, And that if we didn't really reverse those trends and go back to critical pedagogy in the classroom, a la Paulo Freire, even back to John Dewey, and if we didn't have a, a really vibrant free press Um, that really cherished independent uh, uh, fact-checking and verification of information, that we were likely just at the beginning of a precipice of a long, dark fall into a disinformative dystopian abyss. And I think that we're still teetering there. And what we've now seen um, is that misinformation and disinformation have extraordinary consequences. Well, look, we've warned this for years at Project Censored. And by the way, Nolan Higdon's excellent book, The Anatomy of Fake News, a critical news media literacy education, should be read far and wide um, because it not only talks about how fake news isn't new, it's propaganda. It's morphed over the years and technology has caused it to be harder and harder to detect and mitigate. But he actually gives a toolkit in the end of that book about how to fight against fake news. And our documentary, United States of Distraction, Fighting the Fake News Invasion, does same. And you can see that for free at our website, projectcensored.org. It's a great film for the classroom. Great film to spark conversations like this one with your extraordinarily important questions and observations. And we think that the very act of doing what we're doing right now, what you two are doing right now with me and what you choose to do on this platform 
this is a fantastic model for the kind of discourse that everybody should be privy to. We should all be able to have these kinds of conversations and be invited into this kind of didactic dialogue and dialectic that not only encourages people to think independently, but also encourages people to learn. It gives people the space to reconsider, um, maybe think about things from a different perspective, maybe admit that they may they have changed their minds about things. And so I think censorship is the enemy of intellectualism. Censorship is the enemy of critical thought. Um, and when we have a sitting president talking about how journalists are the enemy of the people, you know, riffing on the Lügenpresse of World War I and II Germany, let's not forget that the same tactics being used by Cambridge Analytica and others are right out of Eddie Bernays' playbook 100 years ago in the Creel Commission. You know, when he wrote in 1928 in Propaganda that um, these invisible governors pull the wires of the public mind, right, that the an elite intellectual uh, establishment has the right to tell people what reality looks like and to curate reality, you know, that's how we tend to talk about these issues, very historically, contextually grounded, not trying to keep up with the latest uh, fake news story, right? You know, as Jonathan Swift wrote in 1610, you know, about how, um, <laughs> you know, uh, falsehoods fly and the truth comes limping after it. Well, in the 21st century, falsehoods fly halfway around the world in nanoseconds, and we've discovered through our social scientific research that even if people can catch up to, to correct facts, people often don't change their minds, right? It's called the backfire effect. And so, you know, Project Censored is part of the National Coalition Against Censorship. We're part of Banned Books Week. We believe that the best way to sort out information is openly, is transparently. Um, as as well-intentioned as some may say Facebook is with, with fact-checking and you know, you take a look at who the fact checkers are. They were, they were, they had the it, the former Weekly Standard neoconservative publication as fact checkers. They have Atlantic Council, the PR wing of NATO, right, with all of its deep state, um, you know, sort of uh, board members from the CIA, the State Department, the military industrial complex. These are hardly neutral observers. And for people who pay attention, it drives a further degree of cynicism about these very platforms that bleeds into the public sphere. And which is, this is also why we have record low trust cross generations of our institutions. We are in a civil crisis. We are in a constitutional crisis. And the way out of this is through education, discourse, and dialogue, not through propaganda and partisanship. And so at Project Censored, we hope that we model both of, of those pedagogical practices, and we hope we encourage people to um, reconsider their, their tendency to censor that with, with which they disagree, and rather engage it. And in fact, Nolan Higdon and I are working on a book right now with Rutledge tentatively titled, Let's Agree to Disagree, that's a critical thinking primer across media studies and across disciplines that encourage people to understand differences. And that doesn't mean to tolerate bigotry. Uh, that doesn't mean that people can't address complicated issues like hate speech and so on. It means that our default is that we need to compassionately listen, deconstruct, ask questions, and understand before we lead our charges uh, to purge people and to scapegoat people out of the global village. Nikki, you touched on this already, but I wanted to return to it at least briefly to further flesh things out a little bit. So you mentioned the problem of 
private companies censoring, so not just state, state censorship, but also uh, these privately owned social media corporations, uh, online companies exercising that censorious power. And and Austin, of course, addresses that in the, the piece that I mentioned before. And to kind of um, frame the argument, he, he refers back to the civil rights movement. And when you had activists practicing civil disobedience and sitting in privately owned lunch counters, for example. And so he questions this tendency among some progressive, some liberals, some folks on the left, even to subordinate the free speech right to, to the right of capital, to the right of private property. And I wondered if you could comment on uh, a little bit more on the problem of these unaccountable private corporations censoring and deplatforming and disappearing uh, various vo voices that are marginalized anyway. Uh, and if you think that is as big a problem as government or state censorship, I know um, like Ira Glasser, for example, former director of the ACLU, who was the subject of a documentary this past year, Mighty Nico Ira. Perino. Nico Perino, that's a fabulous documentary, Mighty Ira. I had him on the Project Censored show. Great, great film, great person. Yeah, yeah. I, and I agree. W one thing that I, I found myself, I guess a, a slight point of departure uh, with Iris, he seems to have more faith in uh, mm -hmm. privately owned enterprise uh, to not censor than he does the government or the state. And mm -hmm. I'm, I guess, equally skeptical uh, and critical of, you know, the state corporate nexus is sure. alluded to. So, so I wondered if you could maybe uh, go into a little bit more detail about your position and project centered position vis-a-vis that private censorship and and whether you think it's uh, just as big an issue as government or state censorship well yeah that's a that's a brilliant question and isn't it uh isn't it the uh isn't it the question of our time <laughs> um you know nick johnson at the federal communications commission years ago uh said that whatever your first uh interest and first priority is you know in life whatever your your prime civic motivation is if your second isn't to create media reform or a very democratic and, and independent media system, you're likely to gain very little ground in your first area. And he wrote about it in a book called Your Second Priority. And I would, I would suggest that the bigger frame of your question is exactly that one. Um, I think that no matter what we're arguing about or what we're trying to make sense of, racial justice, um, state violence, wars, surveillance, um, what we know about this stuff comes through filters. Right. And I would I mean, I'm certainly not casting aspersions toward Ira Glasser, um, I, but I would suggest this. Um, the view that you just attributed to Glasser almost to me seems at least in part generationally inspired um, that, you know, you go back to the Watergate period and Daniel Ellsberg trusted The New York Times to do the right thing. And when President Nixon tried to stop them, the Supreme Court stood up for the rights of the free press. I'm afraid that that wouldn't happen now. The climate has shifted and changed such the degree to which that whether you look at Julian Assange, Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, um, Thomas Drake, John Kiriakou, reality winner, um, I've just rattled off a list of prominent whistleblowers in the last plus decade, all of whom were persecuted or prosecuted by the United States government, and, and all of whom tried to cooperate with the private alleged free press that would not assist them 
in alerting the public as to how the government was abusing the law and abusing civil rights and human rights. So I think that the private sector, if it was resting on any of its Pulitzer-like laurels, that has eroded. That trust is eroded. And at Project Censored, I have the same skepticism that Carl Jensen had, but it's a skepticism that's, that's peppered with optimism, right? You scratch the surface of a pessimist and you find a disappointed optimist. And I think we have an amazing free press system in theory, but because we have seen it degrade the degree to which that we're now cheerleading truth tellers uh, prosecution, we're cheerleading the extradition of the Julian Assange. Um, we're shooting the messenger, whether it's Assange, just like we did with Gary Webb, who broke the crack cocaine CIA story that Project Censored helped to break. And Peter Phillips at Project Censored brought Gary Webb's story from the Mercury News to Dan Simon at Project at Seven Stories Press, and they published the Dark Alliance. You know, Seven Star- Project Censored is one of the original Seven Stories at Seven Stories Press in New York, and they published that seminal journalistic historical work because the San Jose Mercury News refused to support Webb. So I know I've, it sounds maybe like I'm on a rant here, and of course, occupational hazards for people that lecture for a living, but I think that the free press, as we've seen it, and the corporatization and privatization of it, um, and the further hyperpartisanship of it for commercial value, um, it's, it's just eroded the trust. So I see corporate censorship as more pernicious, perhaps, more pervasive, and arguably more significant now than government censorship, even though government censorship is now and always is a challenge and a problem of epic proportion. I think, ironically, in the internet age, we are dealing with more problems of censorship than prior, but we are also ironically awash in a sea of information unprecedented in human history. So this is why I go back to why we need civics literacy, civil literacy and civics education. We need critical media literacy and critical pedagogy, and we need an open dialogue and an open society where censorship should be seen as a last resort for odious and dangerous and violent ideas, not the go-to, not the knee-jerk, but censorship should always be something that is deliberated openly and should be something that, I mean, again, my default position is in opposition to censorship. And the Project Censored's position, generally historically, frowns extraordinarily upon censorious actors and actions. But like I said, we're not completely tone deaf. We understand that libel, slander, rampant lying that significantly harms humanity. um, We have to address those challenges and problems. But it isn't just when we look at the Alex Joneses of the world that we address them We have to look at the Judy Millers and the New York Times and the lies of weapons of mass destruction that led to the death of over a million Iraqis and six million refugees, too. And I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And I think if we're not teaching young people and we're not talking about these controversial issues in our college classrooms, we are seeding one of the last civic spaces to have these kinds of important conversations and I, that's why I will fight to the end to keep it open and pr- protect academic freedom. And that's why I support Nico Perino and groups like Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education for their support of free speech and academic freedom on campus, because it's too easy to lose it 
when we allow those on the margins to start taking the bullets first. And then we don't care because they didn't, we didn't like that idea. Eventually they're going to come for all of us. And I don't mean to invoke a slippery slope fallacy. History has shown that once you open that door and allow voices to be suppressed, the opening to the door for suppression gets wider and the opening to the mind to hear different ideas becomes narrower. We want to switch gears now slightly after that well-articulated position. So Mickey, you've served, or perhaps you're still serving, you can clarify this, as co-chair of the history department and chair of the journalism department at Diablo Valley College. I am still serving, or or, or maybe I'm being served, but yes, I, <laughs> I still am in those roles. <laughs> okay, okay. And so I wonder if you could comment on what it was like for you at Diablo Valley before you became department chair in two different departments, and then also on what assuming those roles has been like and what you've learned by working as a department chair in two different departments? You know, academia is a strange place. And it's, um, I guess, like a lot of other areas when people are growing up and they have these, they imagine what that's going to look like. And they, you know, when you get really excited about something and passionate about something, and then you go and you do it, um, there's a tendency that, that uh, the halo effect starts to wear off. Right. And, and you're, you, you really start to, re- to see things for how and what they are. Um, but academia is, is, is a place, warts and all, that I think, and I just mentioned this in my previous ar- argument, that it is a place that's worth preserving and promoting for open discourse, dialogue, and the free exchange of ideas as a model. And the community college system in particular in the state of California, which is the largest higher educational system in the world, serving nearly 3 million students, 115 um, institutions, including virtual, um, that spoke to me, the mission of lifelong learning, people who couldn't afford college or um, maybe uh, had various things that impacted them performing the way that schools were structured and the way the curriculum had been structured and changed over the years. Community college to me really exemplifies an open learning and curious mentality that was instilled in me in an early age. And I, you know, I grew up in, in back East and in the Midwest outside of Pittsburgh, and there aren't a lot of community colleges there. So I didn't grow up with, with really as much of the idea that those were options for people. When I moved to California, they were everywhere. And uh, so I started teaching, I've been teaching 20 years now. Um, I started teaching, uh, believe it or not, political science at Western Career College. Um, and then I got into Diablo Valley College, Chabot College, Laney College, Vista College, Berkeley City College. I've taught at UC, CSU, Sonoma State, CSU East Bay. But Diablo Valley College is, um, that's where I got the full, hired full-time tenure, 2008, tenure, 2012. Been there ever since. Um, Diablo Valley College has always been an amazing place. It's a huge school, 22,000 students. Uh, it's a very diverse campus, main feeder school into UC Berkeley and the CSUs and Stanford and Davis. Um, very eclectic and also has very progressive civil libertarian values. We've got an important social justice message. We've got important academic freedom messages that our faculty, Senate, president and district have recently revisited and recommitted to. Uh, and they took a while to get recommissioned because a lot of these kind of uh, bureaucracies so like, well, wait a minute, of course we ad- adhere to academic freedom. Well, then why is this happening to my colleague 
uh, over here that he's being doxxed and challenged for sticking up for the rights of minorities in a public lecture. Um, you know, why are these things happening to these people? Well, so institutions are imperfect and bureaucracies move slowly. But Diablo Valley College, I think, has been remarkably responsive and the leadership remarkably open to working across aisles and differences to better serve diverse students across the spectrum. And I have to say that, and I'll knock on all the wood in my area, I've always been supported there. Uh, and I teach uh, about very controversial topics from you know, 9-11 to censorship, uh, propaganda studies, political economy. Um, and, and, I've al- I, I, and I think it's because when I'm teaching, I'm not preaching. Um, I want people to challenge status quo, but I want people to challenge me too. I want people to challenge anything that they see and read and hear. And I think that the diverse student population at a place like DVC is such a rich um, laboratory for these ideas to grow. And we can all influence each other across class lines, across uh, gender and racial lines in truly intersectional ways. Now, you mentioned chairing, which is often very political, um, but I've really gotten to see the other side of the spectrum. And I will say this, um, I will use the term, unfortunately, I don't love bureaucracy. And I, as much as I understand how important it is to have somebody that's open-minded and fair in a chair position, um, I prefer teaching. And I've been spending nearly half my time in bureaucracy because I've been revitalizing the journalism program. We're rebuilding the journalism program across disciplines and into the community where there are news deserts. Um, So I'm really actually being able to do so many things beyond the classroom right now, which is both an honor and a privilege, but I do miss the classroom. And I don't just mean COVID-19 classroom, you know, stuff. I, I miss having more interaction with students as I take on more and more bureaucratic roles. But this is that unfortunate thing. I think we need more faculty taking on some of those roles so that we reflect the significant interest of teaching first and being on the front lines with students to teach. And so while I don't always relish the bureaucracy and the back end of things, being chair of history and journalism and the important intersection of those subjects to me, um, to me, there aren't, uh, there are, those have to be, for me, among the two most significant disciplines that anyone can study. I'm not belittling any other disciplines, but I think that everybody benefits from studying history and journalism to a certain degree, going back to Nicholas Johnson, if you will. Um, and so I find myself, again, you know, very fortunate to work with such good colleagues, committed colleagues that really care about students. But I would say um, equally as important, they really care uh, about improving everyone's lives, and they really care about racial, economic, and social justice for everyone. And that means listening to unpopular views. That does mean trying to get people to understand how our society is changing, how dynamically, how quickly. And, you know, that's what community colleges are designed to try to benefit communities and improve people's lives. And so for me, it's really just been an honor and a privilege to be able to serve in that capacity. And uh, I, I look forward to continuing uh, to do the work that I do at places like Diablo Valley College and beyond. We do workshops across the country. We do, um, we do pedagogical workshops for colleges, professors, students across the country. Uh, and we're always happy to try to spread 
that kind of wealth of information, of curricula, etc. Um, and so again, I, without getting too much into the weeds about the day-to-days of chairing, um, I think that it's something that it can be done in a way that benefits the institution and the community as a whole. Uh, speaking of Diablo Valley College, and uh, just a note, it's uh, been ranked as one of the top transfer schools in California. Uh, could you elaborate a little more on the public value and significance of community colleges? Schools so often overlooked in discussions of higher education, despite, as you've already pointed out, the role the institution plays when it comes to education for poor, working, and middle-class communities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, what you just said at the end of that, uh, of your statement and question there, is I think so crucial. Um, these are institutions for everyone, which means they they bring all the challenges that everyone might bring. Um, and I know societally, we heap a lot of responsibility on our educational institutions to fill in the gaps where our other institutions have fallen short. And that's caused a lot of undue strains and pressures on the community college system. But, you know, the community college system in a lot of ways is really um, a community center. It's for education. It's for um, exchange of ideas. It's to address community problems. It's to, you know, shine light in dark places of the community that, that need more attention. Um, And, you know, university systems are all those things too, but they come with price tags and they come with stigmas and uh, they've operated historically on the basis of exclusion rather than inclusion, which is ironic given the alleged mission of higher education. And if you take a look, actually a recent study, I'm going to blank on the source of it. I'm sorry. Um, but your your uh, audience can check it out. A recent study just showed that a, that a lot of people, um, uh, in fact, I think it was close to a majority of people that were going on to get college degrees had some experience in the community college system. And in fact, people without college degrees that went on to great professional success had some experience in the community college system. And so again, it's, it's community college system isn't just a stopgap. Um, it plugs gaps, it fills gaps, and it also opens up the possibility to anyone that wants to be educated that they can pursue their intellectual interests, they can pursue their vocational interests, and they can pursue any avenue that requires them to learn more to give back to community. And, you know, I can't think of really a more egalitarian kind of institution. And so, um, again, I'll go back, warts and all, with the challenges we face. I think that the community college system is one of the most significant laboratories to address the challenges we face, and we can learn a lot by the way community colleges uh, address and govern their affairs, both for better and worse. Nikki, I wondered if you could also comment on the labor conditions and arrangements at Diablo Valley. That is, in your assessment, I'm wondering how entrenched is the two-tier system that separates the full-time and tenured faculty from the often poorly paid and precariously employed part-time contingent faculty? And is there a union representing either the full-time or part-timers or both? And have there been any efforts among adjuncts at DVC to self-organize and push back against second-tier status imposed on so many community college instructors in California? I, I do teach at Riverside City College, a uh, community college in the Inland Empire, and I've taught at several 
uh, community colleges throughout SoCal, in addition to teaching at Cal State and at the University of California, Riverside. But I'm very familiar with the contingent faculty struggle. So I was just curious um, what it's like or if it's present there at DVC and if, if you wanted to comment on that. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because I comment on it often, and including at the last deans and chairs meeting we had um, with about 60 personnel. Uh, we in academia have a tendency to jargon toward jargon. And when, especially when we talk to each other and when we talk about each other, because it is a very tiered system. So what I'm going to say right now isn't specific to Diablo Valley College. And the reason I'm saying that is because every college that I've been on and taught, I've taught at a dozen places. We all are experienced. Uh, we all have experience witnessing from one side or the other, this extraordinary tiered system. Uh, academia is one of the most contradictory places in that regard, where it alleges to be um, progressive, informed, ahead of the curve, yet it, it practices some of the worst labor practices I've ever seen. Um, and DVC is not different that way. That's why my comments are not directed about or toward any particular person or office at DVC. In fact, I think at DVC, certainly in the departments I chair, I was an adjunct for eight years and I am ever mindful. I have PTSD around being an adjunct faculty member and teaching at three places and wondering where uh, we, I was going to be working and what my wife and I were going to do. And we had a baby coming and, you know, I lived that life. And as much as I loved the privilege of teaching, I didn't love the two tiered system. And so I felt like when I got a tenure track job, it was like hitting the lottery. They're so difficult to get. I mean, there were hundreds of people applying for these jobs that one person will get. Right. Um, and so I specifically recently have rekindled my argument against the language of quote, part timer as a divisive and hierarchical term because nobody is part-time when they're teaching. When you're in the classroom, you're 100% the professor and your students are 100% the students. They don't see it any other way. And if we don't institutionally support the professor, we're not supporting the student. And yes, there are efforts for adjuncts to, to unionize and push back because as we've unfortunately seen, full-time unions have often had to make very complicated, painful choices where they were pushed by management to either throw newcomers under the bus or lose their own gains. I myself was a victim to this with healthcare benefits, where a full-time union votes to cut union benefits for new people coming in after a certain date, right? I mean, that's a real challenge. This two-tiered system, three, let's get into the weeds here, man. We've got full-time tenure. We've got emeritus. We've got tenure track. Then we've got adjunct rehire rights. Then we've got adjunct contingent faculty without rights serving at will. And they're at the most vulnerable. And there's no rhyme or reason. You can hire or, you can hire or not rehire at will. Notice I didn't say fire. So there's an extraordinary amount of potential for abuse in that system. I, as part of being a chair, I have really tried to take a sensibility as much as the institution allows it to treat everybody as fair and equal as possible. But the very system itself is unequal. And the very system itself uh, is prone 
to treating people with a lack of equity. And that's ironic given how equity is all the rage at these institutions these days. And so I argued simply, one way to start addressing inequality is by the way we talk about it. And nobody is a part-timer. Most of the people that I know that are adjunct faculty teach two, three, four places and teach more than alleged full-time faculty. So I wanna call adjunct faculty, contingent faculty, uh, lecturers. I want to use the uh, descriptive languages so that people understand that the main difference between these people and these labels isn't their ability, isn't their commitment, isn't their desire to s- serve community and students. It's the way the institutions in the state treat them with pay, lack of pay, benefits, lack of benefits, perks, lack of perks. And I think that we need to do a lot of rolling up our sleeves as full-time tenured faculty to address the adjunct contingent faculty's needs and their rights because they're not adequately being met. And I think that this has to happen locally, regionally. It needs to happen at the state level in California. And my one hope is that now that we do have in Dr. Jill Biden, somebody with a community college pedigree and experience at that level of governance in our society, that it might shine a light onto not only the significance and importance of that kind of institution, but also the inequities repeated within it. And when we repeat inequity, and when we repeat oppression and inequality, we are tacitly passing it on to our students. And that's unacceptable to me as an educator. And so my job is never done. And and I know that this may sound hollow, to adjuncts and and lecturers everywhere. But I was once that person. And in fact, I still am. I lecture at Sonoma State. I lecture at East Bay. I have no rights there. I know still what it's like to be treated as second or third class as an academic. And I think it's wrong. And I don't have a magic wand to fix it overnight. But I want to listen. And I want to be part of any movement that helps close the gap in equity between tenured faculty and non-tenured faculty. To shift to yet another aspect of your work, because we uh, want to get to all the different things you're doing, uh, you sit on the advisory board of the Media Literacy and Digital Culture Graduate Program at Sacred Heart University in Connecticut. Could you tell us a little bit about that program and the work you've done for it on the advisory board? Yeah, actually, and unfortunately, this the answer to your question will be very telling. That's a private university um, in Connecticut. It was, uh, the program was started by a colleague of mine, or a brilliant media studies colleague, Bill Usman, uh, along with Lori uh, Bindig Usman, uh, allies of ours in the critical media literacy world. Uh, that program is no more. Uh, that college no longer saw fit to support that program. And while it was a great endeavor and experiment that produced some really great students and outcomes, The program is no more, which shows all the more reason why we need to have critical media literacy curriculum through K-12, K-14, undergrad and grad school. It needs to be something that's part of the curriculum and mandated, not something that someone's lucky enough to find, but critical media literacy is important enough that we all need it. And we need it at multiple levels. One of the things we're doing at Project Censored, we're starting our own publishing house, The Censored Press. And one of the first books we're doing, in addition to our annual book on the news that doesn't make the news, is we're working on a critical media literacy textbook for young adults. We're just starting it now. Um, and some of these folks that we've worked with before are contributing to it. So 
I sit on various boards, whether it's behind the headlines, Media Freedom Foundation. I'm on the board at creditor.com, the crowd contested media source to rate news sources like Yelp or Rotten Tomatoes. And I was proud to serve on the board of this program in media literacy and digital culture. But like I said, I'm sad to report that the program is no more because it lacked institutional support. And again, I'll double down. This is why we need those programs and we need brave uh, scholars like the Usemans to stick their necks out at a conservative university and do the right thing. And they did. And I commend them for what they did. And it was an honor to serve with them. They, of course, continue to, to go on to do important things, just like the Action Coalition for Media Education and many other organizations back east do. Um, but I think that that question really, I think, is a great platform to remind everyone that these programs should be everywhere. And if you want to learn more about our curriculum and how to do that, you can contact us through projectcensored.org. Related to that, at least on the kind of publishing side and trying to make sure there's at least some space for critical media literacy, you're also on the editorial board of Secrecy and Society uh, and quote, interdisciplinary peer-reviewed open access journal that, uh, as the journal's website states, welcomes work written by scholars across fields and disciplines on the subject of secrecy as the intentional, unintentional concealment of information. Uh, could you tell us a little about that journal and about how it might differ from other academic journals? Yeah, actually, it's Susan Merritt, an information literacy scholar uh, who we've worked with for years, who's contributed to Project Censored. Uh, she's she's the force behind that journal, and I'm on the board of it. So is my colleague and co-author, Nolan Higdon. Um, we've published a few articles at that journal, including most recently, a contemporary historiographic analysis um, about how today's fake news becomes tomorrow's fake history. And along with uh, historian Jen Lyons, we researched the most contemporary and commonly used history textbooks, K-12. Um, and we looked at Project Censored's top censored stories uh, since, since the 9-11 attacks. And we looked at what the top stories were versus how those subjects were covered in contemporary history texts that are most commonly taught. And we discovered a wide gap between what Project Censored covered as significant stories and more status quo corporate news reporting that was extant and more commonplace in these commonly used textbooks, which, which begs the question, how influenced are historians by contemporary legacy corporate media? You know, the so-called mainstream isn't mainstream. It's controlled by six major corporations, 90% of it. They have an agenda. They have a bias. They have an interest. How is that bias um, how, how, how does it impact scholars? How does it impact people that are tasked with recording our history as it takes place? Ralph McGahee, whistleblower at the CIA, wrote about this in Covert Action Quarterly years and years ago about the disinformation and misinformation systems of our government and in collusion with private for-profit enterprises to manipulate public opinion a la Eddie Bernays, going back 100 years to the role of propaganda in our society. And so the Journal of Secrecy and Society is a very interesting interdisciplinary journal that looks at the impact of secrecy and censorship on free society. Um, so it's an honor to be on that board and work with Susan Merritt. By the way, she works with us at the Global Critical Media Literacy Project, our sister site, which is gcml.org. So those of your um, listeners that are interested, we have a free educator's resource guide for critical media literacy, education, and pedagogy. We have a free hundred and some page book that we put together uh, four or five years ago that 
shows how do you bring critical media literacy into the classroom. It has the validated independent news assignment, junk food news, advertising, visual literacy, etc. Um, and Susan Merritt has just recently taken on a new role with us where she's going to be working to help build that site as a major critical media literacy and information integrity resource. So her, her work at Secrecy and Society and Government Secrecy, I think, is pioneering. And again, it's an honor to know her and work with her and be part of that journal out of San Jose State University. To wrap things up, Mickey, we wanted to ask, do you have any long-term goals for your own scholarly research or for your own pedagogy in the classroom or for the public pedagogy that Project Censored provides or for any of the other organizations that you're involved in? Well, all of the organizations from Project Censored Out network-wise are free speech, free press, anti-censorship based. Um, That seems to have been a, it's part of my moral compass, if you will. Um, People ask if Project Censored is biased, right or left. And I say, yes, Project Censored is biased, but we're biased in favor of a free press. And uh, the work that I'm doing at DVC with journalism is, is, uh, I think, reflects that principle. We want to create a media freedom center. We want to create a place for for students to fuse critical media literacy uh, and journalistic ethics. Um, We want to really imbibe, imbibe, uh, if you will, we want to drink that. um, We really want to really, I'm searching for the mixed metaphors here because we want to really benefit from this public pool, right? We want to take what the, the large community college environment and society at large gives us uh, that knowledge, right? It gives us this pool of knowledge from which to drink, but it's so much we drown, right? And so what, what I see our role at Project Censored is and what our role in higher education is, is to help people give the tools so that they know how can they filter out the information? How can they how can they understand uh, to separate wheat from chaff, mis- and disinformation from actual factual information? How do we get more people thinking more critically about more media, broadening the media frame? How do we get people to consume less junk food news, more actual news? How do we get people to realize that they have a responsibility for their media and information intake, not just outsourcing it to fact checkers and media, me- major media corporations that have varied and, and uh, um, ulterior motives, right? And so my message and my mission has long been a didactic one. And I'm privileged to have the positions I do both at Project Censored and in higher education. And with the the radio show, the Project Censored show, a national syndicated radio show on Pacific Radio on 50 stations, uh, our documentary films, the work that I do with so many um, amazing people. I hope that the ripple effect of some of my efforts influence other people to build on that mission and to continue that mission with the same interest, same fervor, same zeal, same sense of curiosity, and same same sense of optimism that I, I do have deep within me. Um, that is also, of course, shaded and tempered with healthy skepticism uh, and cynicism, but humor is a very powerful way of mitigating some of that. And by the way, we have some really important characters and people in our history that have used humor to elevate critical media literacy from George Carlin to Lee Camp. And so I'm a favor in looking across the spectrum at anybody that wants to help elevate not just our discourse, but our critical thinking capacities. And I'm willing to reach across lines and aisles to work with anybody who's interested in doing that for the betterment of humanity and our society. And on that cynical and optimistic note, uh, <laughs> uh, Mickey, we want to thank you for being on the program. This was great. We, uh, I think we covered a, a pretty cool range of territory. 
Well, I want to thank the both of you for what you do. Um, and again, it was a, a, a sincere privilege and an honor to come on and be in conversation with you all and be in the company of um, so many uh, other very interesting and great minds of our time. So I, I commend you for the important work you do. And I'll definitely be visiting here more and and uh, pointing more of our students and my colleagues to, to your site and your work. So thanks so much for what you do. And that was our interview with Mickey Huff, who teaches at Diablo Valley College and is director of Project Censored. Eli, we talked a bit about Mickey and Project Censored's uh, opposition to suppression of information and deplatforming of persons on social media. And I couldn't help but think about some parallels between what's going on in the digital public square and what's going on in the microcosm of the public square that we find on campus and some of the free speech issues and issues of academic freedom that we've uh, discussed on the show previously. And so I wondered if any of those parallels came to mind for you and if it got you thinking more about uh, free speech and censorship on Canvas, and if so, how? Yeah, maybe just the, the short answer is it just kind of reaffirmed for me of how intractable the situation is and how much, you know, long-term education work is probably our only way out and it just takes time, unfortunately. And, you know, what I mean by that is we've already discussed about why the free speech on campus issues is so complex and so messy, which is that, see if we can, I can do the kind of quick sur- uh, survey of things we've talked about on the show. One is it is easier to uh, do uh, diversity and name and quick canceling of people from administrator higher up than doing uh, kind of deeper diversity reform, both of the curriculum and actually bringing people to campus and building a culture that supports them of uh, marginalized communities, because that's really hard work. And, you know, canceling a right wing speaker or, you know, someone who does sexual harassment of getting them quickly fired seems like a much quicker fix than long-term cultural shifting on a campus. Uh, Another issue is that we, you know, don't really have good cultures of community organizing for change. You know, I think a lot of students are doing cool things for sure. And there's for sure it's cool movement building. But on the other hand, there's a lot of, again, kind of desire for quick fight over particular figures who particularly, you know, on the right or somewhere else who kind of feed on, the negative reaction of students and other people as part of their personality, you know, everyone from Donald Trump to uh, Ben Shapiro to, you know, even on the left, I think Bill Maher more and more kind of fills this type. So there's actually a kind of media saturated narrative that just a kind of feedback cycle that uh, endless and unproductive. Uh, uh, There are other things too, but uh, I guess a third I would add that just important we've discussed before is uh, also just frankly the tension between inside the liberative processes, young people, especially, you know, young, many 18 to 20 year old students on campus, of course, there's more and more diversity on higher education campuses, but by and large, it's still a majority group, figuring out important issues for themselves, along with faculty support and trying to deliberate through those issues on their own time versus that with outside media attention. For example, the cases that Evergreen and Hampshire College both had uh, issues where kind of far-right groups came in and cried a foul of radical liberalization, whereas, you know, I think their issues with faculty or things like flagrating or other things would have discussed with the community and over, you know, a, a, probably a several-year process would have come to more a community-based decision. So outside media attention is a kind of another factor. 
this all leads to, uh, yes, I think a culture where administrators feel it is easy to quote unquote cancel, I think it would be even better to say, you know, just try to do quick fixes on voices that are unpopular or because of kind of quick tensions on campuses they want to diffuse with sometimes very uh, reactive decision making that's not really very well thought out. And of course, another problem with that is sometimes it's intentional to build more uh, authoritative power for themselves to act whoever they want when they think someone's uncomfortable. And, you know, obviously that ends up damaging the left more than the right the way Mickey was talking about on the grander political stage. That was a very long way to say that the situation seems like the free speech issue is so tied into broader cultural issues that when, uh, when we're having these discussions about, you know, should someone be able to say what they want on Twitter or on campus, by the time we've gotten there, there's probably so many other issues that caused it that we're really seeing a symptom rather than a cause. What about you? What are your thoughts on this? Well, as you were discussing administrators sometimes agglomerating more power by, you know, exercising their censorious discretion, I also thought about several high-profile instances, violations of academic freedom, like we talked about with uh, Hank Reichman, where you'll have academics posting on social media, for example, and either getting disciplined or terminated as a result, of course, that happened most infamously, perhaps, with Stephen Fleda at my alma mater, the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, when he was higher-fired for tweeting critically of, of Israel. And I'm actually going to make a connection between that and other employers, particularly news outlets, who are terminating journalists for tweeting that the news organization uh, deems inappropriate and, and the like in just a second. But before I move there, I mean, there's other instances uh, more recently of uh, social media posts that should be, again, I mean, if if the AAUP has anything to say about it, should be protected by academic freedom, but hitherto have not been. For example, there was a second year PhD student at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center's College of Pharmacy uh, who recently got into trouble for supposedly violating the college's professional standards because of her social media posts. Uh, and it's, as far as I can tell, those pref- professional standards are in themselves a violation of academic freedom, which, by the way, is supposed to apply to graduate students and undergraduates too, for that matter. And then what I had mentioned before about you know the news organizations increasingly exercising that kind of, well, the kind of power that Elizabeth Anderson discussed in her book about private government, right? We're seeing that with, for example, the New York Times fired Lauren Wolf when she tweeted something about the Biden inauguration. It was was a pretty silly tweet, in my estimation, saying something to the effect that she got teary-eyed or got chills uh, when she uh, saw President-elect Biden that day, something like that, right? And the New York Times considered that running afoul of objectivity or something like that, even though they do that all the time, right? And so she got the axe. uh, Also, even more recently, Nathan Robinson, who was a columnist at The Guardian, he was fired for a tweet that was critical about uh, Israel. And what's so notable about that is he was 
very clear. He he actually posted two tweets, one that was sarcastic and then a follow-up that was clarifying the car- sarcasm. And so just to provide a little bit of context, because I think it's sort of important, in late December of 2020, Congress was negotiating COVID relief and simultaneously they signed off on $500 million in military aid to Israel. And by the way, USAID comprises a not insignificant amount of Israel's defense budget, about a fifth according to Human Rights Watch and their reading of a Congressional Research Service report that was published in 2020, like about 18.5% of Israel's defense budget. And so Robinson, a little annoyed at the fact that the U.S. government is giving its citizens a pittance for COVID relief, no payment for up to you know 70 or 80% of lost wages, like in some European nations for folks who are out of work, no allotment or call for hazard pay, you know, very little in terms of rent relief, even though people are you know facing eviction right now and that can only compound a pandemic. But nevertheless, the United States can find money to give to Israel's military. And so what Robinson had tweeted was, did you know that the U.S. Congress is not actually allowed to authorize any new spending unless a portion of it is directed toward buying weapons for Israel. It's a law. And then he followed it up with, or if not actually the written law, then so ingrained in political custom as to functionally be indistinguishable from law. And so obviously the first tweet was sarcasm, and then he tried to clarify that. But nevertheless, there were folks that were calling him anti-Semitic as a result, conflating legitimate criticism of a nation state and its militarism with you know, anti-Semitism, which I think is wrong. And I think most people will look at that, a serious critical eye would probably agree. And so things like that. And then with the, the other news organizations, like this isn't the first time it's happened. CNN fired Temple University professor and prison abolitionist Mark Lamont Hill over comments that he also made uh, that were in, in actually in this case, critical of Israel and Uh, in support of Palestinian rights. And what's so notable about that, this is even on like CNN's own page about it. They had mentioned that Hill said, we must advocate and promote nonviolence. So they even acknowledged that. Uh, But he added that we cannot endorse a narrow politics of respectability that shames Palestinians for resisting, for refusing to do nothing in the face of state violence and ethnic cleansing. And he called for a free Palestine from river to the sea. And so that was enough to get him fired. And there are academics who are also pushing for this. There's a really good piece at Jewish Currents called The Real War on Free Speech that was published a while back. And it talks a little bit about Barry Weiss, who I'm not going to get into, but it also mentions Carrie Nelson, who's Professor Emeritus at the University of Illinois under Banish-Champaign and author of Israel Denial, Anti-Zionism, Anti-Semitism, and the Faculty Campaign Against the Jewish State. And Nelson defended the trustee's decision in 2014 to deny tenure to Stephen Salida. And he's written pretty extensively about what he sees as the pernicious effects of anti-Zionist scholars on the academic climate. And what's so interesting about that, or what the what the piece at Jewish Currents argues, is that attempts to shut down speech that's critical of Israel are done while simultaneously advocating for free speech in response to so-called council culture. And that's obviously seems pretty hypocritical. And so that Israel advocacy is framed as an attempt to protect and promote free speech, not suppress it, which is the actual effect. And I should add that the ACLU, they've came out stating that laws suppressing boycotts of Israel, for example, like BDS, are unconstitutional in the United States. That's worth thinking about because there are 
efforts, including legislative efforts, to clamp down on the BDS movement. And of course, the BDS movement has a presence on many college campuses in the United States. But I don't didn't want to make it all about that. I wanted to return briefly to some of the social media censorship that I think a critical media literacy education in the college classroom should be grappling with. And, and this is something that I bring up when I teach that lesson drawing on Andrew Austin's piece, the essay that was published at Project Censored that I mentioned during the interview. And, and so I'll give students some of these examples because again, I think the default is to assume that most of the censorship is going to be against what people might reasonably consider hate speech. I'm a little un uncomfortable with the term because I think it's kind of nebulous. And, and also there are certain implications that I find uh, a little disconcerting when the term's invoked. There's also always the issue of who gets to decide what constitutes hate speech, and that tends to be those in positions of authority and concentrated power. And I think we should start questioning the assumption that Silicon Valley billionaires and the compromised political elite with ties to the military industrial complex and the carceral system and corporate power can be trusted to make that determination. But regardless, right, what ends up happening is it's not those, it's not just those on the far right that end up getting censored, which does sometimes happen, right? Because I, I think many of the tech titans, the the billionaire CEOs and the shareholders that own and, and control these corporate media platforms, many of them are, you know, liberal-ish, right? They're neoliberals, so they're they're liberal on cultural issues and the like, but also oftentimes very not uh, progressive when it comes to political economy and labor, for one thing. And also, same thing with the critique of the false generosity of Silicon Valley philanthropy. They get to make the decisions that affect communities. The people that comprise the communities should be able to make those decisions for themselves in a participatory sort of way. The reliance on the largesse of billionaires who more often than not are also going to ensure that their particular interests are attended to. That's the most anti-democratic arrangement I think that I could imagine. And it gets worse, right? I don't know if I think I mentioned to you, Eli, that the uh, Las Vegas Review Journal was the first to break the story. The AP followed up on it, and I believe the New Republic has a piece out on it now about this proposal by the governor in Nevada to allow tech companies to create their own autonomous governments in the area. And and so that like that is the epitome of private government. Like it, they literally would have governing authority, which for the most part they already do. Over em employees, as we've seen, uh, this is media companies generally, right? Because, of course, the legacy media, they're part of major conglomerates as well. And in addition to them, like there's also the uh, Silicon Valley social media giants and streaming giants. And they're also exercising censorious power that affects the, you know, what we think of as the digital public square. And so when I teach that Austin piece, I mention things like, you know, Twitter and Facebook banning a story by the uh, New York Post about a laptop that allegedly belonged to Hunter Biden. And I mentioned things like, you know, Pink Floyd's Roger Waters tweeting about banning the international uh, youth and students for social equality from Twitter back in November. The IYSSE is affiliated with international socialist parties. They were later reinstated, but they were banned for more than a week. 
uh, or at least they were um, eliminated from the digital public square for that period of time. And then certain progressive circles also led a successful campaign to remove Michael Moore's new documentary, Planet of the Humans, from YouTube. And of course, Moore himself is a progressive, but the somewhat contrarian approach he took with that documentary questioning some of the green energy doctrine that wasn't appreciated by those in positions of power. And so that was removed. And then over the summer, we saw when there was a crackdown on far right hate speech or what have you major, on major social media platforms, you saw it's going down and crime think and other anarchist and anti-fascist pages that were removed. It's going down and crime thing put out a joint statement about that, about the digital censorship that they predicted would continue apace. And as Austin also mentions in his piece, which was published a while back, right, Facebook deactivated an account and removed the video that documented the police killing of Flando Castile. Facebook removed reports of suppression of indigenous activists and black activist sites and content. Facebook disabled Palestinian journalists' accounts, seemingly actually after Mark Zuckerberg met with the prime minister of Israel. And so these things, I think, should be, well, first of all, I think discussed more because I'm not certain that students, for one, are aware of the way that uh, censorship actually tends to clamp down, I think, on those who are challenging elite power. And oftentimes it's those on the left who are doing that. Uh, and then I think a critical media literacy pedagogy, one that could be informed by a lot of the work that Project Censor does, right? Like they do, they have their validated independent news story exercises, those sorts of things. I think coupling that with discussion of current landscape when it comes to social media and whether something like a digital bill of rights or a, at least a kind of some dialogue about what kind of authority is justified and what kind of ownership and control is legitimate when it comes to new modes of communication like the new public sphere, which arguably are those spaces where we communicate online, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or or YouTube, right? And then and then asking if that is indeed the new public sphere or if it has that de facto function, then should First Amendment principles apply there. And it's not that I think the the Bill of Rights or the U.S. Constitution is sacrosanct, uh, but I, I actually tend to think that some cautionary measures that protect people against repressive state and corporate power from determining what speech is legitimate and what speech isn't, I, I think that's actually kind of useful, right? There are certain, there are certain instances wherein legislation to me makes more sense than letting corporations run amok. I'm not a fan of the hierarchical relations instantiated and coercively reproduced by the state, but I think occasionally the state is more susceptible to popular influence and public participation and public decision-making than are corporations, which are largely unaccountable and function as forms of private government, wherein those who are subject to the governance have very little, if not zero, say in the decisions that affect them within that structure, right? I'm, I'm critical of state power to be certain, right? but there are some cases where you can use legislation to limit both state and corporate power. I think the First Amendment does that with respect to state power anyway, in some ways that 
are somewhat helpful. And similarly, like something like like net neutrality, and we didn't discuss that in the interview, but I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around that, partly because the term's not all that great, right? but it protects like, when that legislation has been implemented. Uh, and that's actually the way the internet was envisioned to begin with. But now that we have these conglomerates, uh, these telecom companies and ISPs that basically monopolize internet service for most people in most areas, sometimes it's one, sometimes it's, it's uh, two, but rarely do you have more options than that when it comes to uh, getting internet service in uh, many places in the United States. And yet, and they've assumed uh, power in the past, actually, to violate net neutrality. And what that means is they will uh, throttle certain, uh, some information from certain sites, right, and create these uh, paid fast lanes, or they, and, or they will slow down information from other sites and the companies whose websites or services they might give preferential treatment to. Right? And those might be ones that they have some financial arrangement with, right? They may be subsidiaries or, or what have you. And that's detrimental to the kind of uh, independent voices that the internet is supposedly a space that allows those to flourish, right? And so it, it really prevents the internet from functioning in the way that that actually reflects the kind of direct participatory democracy that we'd like to see it embody, but unfortunately now, for reasons that we've alluded to, it doesn't. So instances like that, like that kind of legislation, I actually find helpful. I'm always skeptical about how you actually go about getting there. And I should add that the issue of a handful of internet service providers practicing preferential treatment and exercising a kind of top-down control, discriminating against certain content and favoring other content, creating pay-to-pay fast lanes. That can be addressed, I think, in part at least, by the municipal broadband movement trying to create municipally-owned, community-owned, city-owned, public broadband internet service. And I think that could be done along lines that reflect a kind of libertarian municipalism that's much more participatory and gives those within the communities much more say over the internet that they'd own and control. You know, there is talk like we, I think we alluded to in the interview about these social media platforms as public utilities. I think that's interesting, putting, uh, nationalizing them and putting them under workers control or say worker and user control, I think would be really interesting to maybe reframe this, right? We wouldn't consider it acceptable for all phone companies Right, that that provide phone service in an area to be able to uh, tell us like who we can call and who we cannot, right? Or or who we have to wait a while to call and and who we can't. And similarly, we don't think about it like this, but 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 we should because I, I think this is even more likely. Uh, we don't think it's acceptable for Google, for example, to read our emails, but they totally own that service that most of us use to send and receive emails. And Andrew Austin raises some of these issues. There's actually a really interesting analogy that he provides that, that I just want to share really quickly. And I'll throw it back to you, Eli, to get uh, some of your thoughts on the matter. But he provides this argument in favor of protecting free speech in the digital public square. And the analogy goes something like this. I actually, when I teach the lesson, I will make it more relatable for students by substituting in local places in Riverside. And so I'd say students, all right, pretend you're reading an article in the Highlander, which is the UCR student newspaper at the Getaway Cafe, 
which is a pizza and beer and coffee spot that's near campus. Previously, I've said Back to the Grind, which is another coffee shop in Riverside. It doesn't really matter. We'll just go with the Getaway Cafe. And you discuss your thoughts and feelings on the article with the friends over a cup of joe or a cold one if you're 21 or older, right? And then I ask, should the Getaway Cafe be able to decide what you read and discuss? And also what Austin suggests is that having that conversation in the cafe is not the same as authoring the article, which is important too, because for example, Facebook and Twitter aren't authoring the content that some consider objectionable. There's a section in the Communications Act, section 230, that's being discussed. And I think under the guise of some kind of progressivism or something, folks are thinking about rewriting it or eliminating it. And what it does, Austin, I don't know if you mentioned this, but I thought it was an important aside before I continue with the analogy. What it does is it exempts media platforms from being responsible for the content that's on their sites, right? And at first blush, you might be like, well, they should be held responsible. But think about this uh, in a little more depth. And I think you come to different conclusions because, you know, Facebook and YouTube, they can afford... And of course, YouTube is owned by Google, which is parent company Alphabet, and Facebook also owns Instagram, right? Media situation is pretty oligopolistic, but they can afford to deal with lawsuits over stuff on their platforms. But if there's, you know, independent companies that want to try to compete or offer an alternative, do you think they can deal with lawsuits uh, that have to do with, you know, trying to remove stuff from their platform? Not nearly as easily. Right? And then also, should they have to, right? Why would we assume that they have the editorial authority or ability that we would expect a legacy newspaper to have, for example? I don't, I don't think that's a fair assumption. So anyway, uh, I think Section 230, I, I think there are problems with scrapping it entirely. And getting back to that analogy, each table in that getaway cafe, likewise sharing with friends on Facebook, it's kind of like a forum. And so with the latter, you also don't have to worry about being too loud. That is on Facebook, right? People can just go somewhere else. They don't have to visit your page or whatever. And if you object to content, you don't have to follow the user who's sharing it or be the friend of the person who's sharing it. And so Austin, to kind of paraphrase his argument, what I'll say is like, would the left support the getaway exercising the authority to kick you out for reading the Communist Manifesto or maybe Kropotkin's Mutual Aid, a Factor in Evolution, if you were reading that over veggie pizza for dinner, right? Should they have that authority? Well, you might say yes, because it's privately owned. But again, that raises the issue that I mentioned in the interview of subordinating the free speech right to the property right. And when that property right is so all consuming, as one might argue it is in the capitalist society that we live in, that's, I think, accurately characterized by pervasive commodification, right? When it when it becomes oligopolistic, as is the case online in many of these examples, then to suggest that, oh, well, because it's privately owned, they should have the power to shut down virtually all the free speech that, meaningful free speech that occurs in these spaces, I think that's a little suspect. And then to just share a related analogy, like would we want Verizon to be able to deny service if some of its employees disagree with what you say in a phone conversation or in a text message? And I mentioned the, the Google example before, people do think these corporations should be allowed to exercise all of that authority. They just don't necessarily make those connections. And so I don't know, Eli, did you have any thoughts on either the news organizations 
functioning as private governments and firing folks for what they say on social media. Often in response, we should also note to public flack that they might receive online. And of course, it's those who have a modicum of power and influence. Oftentimes that reflects concentrated private power or state power that allows them to exert that kind of pressure and influence on news organizations and on other online media companies for that matter to fire or to discipline or the parallels with that happening uh, to academics on campus or the issue of social media companies exercising censorious power or deplatforming folks or removing their accounts and and how we can maybe uh, engage students in these questions. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, the long and short of it is, I guess, even from what you were saying, it seems to me like part of the issue with free speech, obviously, is important, but it's really kind of the surface of a number of other issues to protect, you know, the autonomy of people and the democratic commonplace to lead to meaningful lives that are not just kind of quashed and held by hierarchical systems. So like, uh, really concretely that like, our free speech issues more are a manifestation of a, a lot of toxic cultural issues and economic issues that unless we address, like we've talked about before in the podcast, the kind of systemic damage will continue to escalate. I certainly, you know, on one side, think that the kind of long-time media literacy is probably one of the most critical things we need to do for the next few generations to build back up a, any chance of a commonplace that's meaningful. But on the other plan, I'm you know, concerned that that takes time. So it's going to, we there is, you know, some crisis management organizing also to think about that I'm less sh- sure about how to handle. Yeah, that said, I, I'm not sure I have much else. Do you have any final thoughts before we uh, close out the episode here? Just a few quick final thoughts. One, yeah. first, I wanted to make an important point that I failed to make before about the business model of social media companies and their source of value and profit. So social media companies like Facebook, for example, basically their business models predicated upon commodifying user-generated content and selling that to third-party clients. And of course, there's a reason that Google and Facebook monopolized the advertising revenue online, which has negatively impacted newspapers, for example, in the digital era. But one of the reasons that those tech companies are able to monopolize that advertising revenue is advertisers really like working with them and you know paying them money so that they can provide targeted ads that are directly related to what people post about or search for. And that's what Google has done, and that's what Facebook does, right? It it takes your user-generated content, your posts, your likes, whatever else you share on the platform, and it's going to take that and sell it on the market as a commodity to advertisers or other corporations who then have the information they need to turn around and sell you things in targeted ads on that same platform. And that being the case, right, they are in a special situation that I think differs from your run-of-the-mill capitalist enterprise, which is still predicated upon exploitation if you accept the Marxian analysis. And I think even if you aren't keen on the Marxist critique, there are certain incontrovertible 
facts about the labor relations within capitalism in a capitalist corporation. Right? The folks who sell their labor power, who work at a corporation, uh, they, they're hired because they're going to produce more value than they're going to get in return. Otherwise, why would the employer hire you? That's one. And then two, they also are subject to the decisions of the employer, as we've been discussing. Right? That's the whole private government thing. And they don't usually get much, if any, say in the decisions that affect them in the workplace, right? And so where we spend most of our lives at work, it's a completely anti-democratic environment where we're basically told what to do. And with the social media companies, then, it, it go, even goes beyond that, right? As media scholars like Christian Fuchs have pointed out, social media companies like Facebook, their business models based on infinite exploitation, Right? Whereas workers in a normal company that's run along capitalist lines right, with the employer-employee relationship and with wage labor involved, what you have are employers remunerating workers for at least some of the labor that they perform, though not all of it for reasons that I just suggested, at least if we accept that critique and framework for understanding – but in the case of Facebook, while they remunerate the software engineers and the employers who help keep it all running, they don't pay the users who are a major source of profit, right? It's our data that is what allows Mark Zuckerberg to make billions of dollars. And that being the case, I think there's even a greater justification for some kind of worker-user control of a platform which is functioning, as we suggested oftentimes, as a public service and is buying up other potential competitives or alternatives. Additionally, I wanted to make a minor correction. Uh, it, it's Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So I'm not sure if I had stated that exactly right, but I, I know I mentioned the, the correct section title, but it's the Communications Decency Act that I was referring to. And then just to, I guess, wrap us up, I mentioned the Alan McLeod piece at Mint Press News, and Mint Press News actually has done a lot of work recently covering censorship online. Some of the algorithmic censorship, too, which is another factor that we haven't discussed much here in the outro, although it was mentioned in the interview. And what happened, right, when social media companies changed their algorithms to supposedly curtail the dissemination of conspiracy theories— well, it promoted corporate media like CNN and Fox News, and it downgraded independent media like Consortium News. For example, their Google traffic fell by 47%. Around this time, Common Dreams fell by 37%. Democracy Now! by 36%. The Intercept, even, which a lot of you know mainstream uh, folks in the political mainstream still read pretty diligently, it fell by 19%. Mint Press News itself suffered similar losses. And Zuckerberg actually admitted to deranking Mother Jones because it leans left, although I think you could probably call what they do a brand of muckraking journalism, although it's also one that has become increasingly mainstream, reflecting mainstream democratic politics, too, for that matter. And so I think that's pretty suggestive. And then I just wanted to underscore what Mickey underscored in the interview, which is the state corporate nexus, right, and some of the military ties 
to big tech. The CIA signed a deal last year worth tens of billions of dollars with Microsoft, Google, Oracle, IBM, and Amazon's web services. And the World Socialist website, they connected some of their downgrading to a change that Google made in April 2017 called Project Al. Uh, and and Google, of course, has uh, got plenty of ties to the military-industrial complex, which somebody like a Julian Assange, right, who's now being persecuted, is spending t- almost 24 hours a day in a cell and was about to be extradited to the United States, but a judge... Uh, I clearly, I, I don't know if I've said this on our podcast before, but our reputation, it's its not good in the United States, right? It uh, precedes ourselves when it comes to the carceral system. And the judge was worried that if he was extradited to the U.S., that his condition would worsen because our prison system is so disgusting. But to get back to some of those things that, that Assange exposed with WikiLeaks and that we, uh, similar things like Facebook, for example, I think Mickey mentioned this, they've partnered with the Atlantic Council which is a propaganda arm and a lobbying group for NATO. And so these connections, right, I think they should give us pause, especially when we want to trust those who are in positions of power in those institutions, you know, atop those social media companies to do the right thing. Like, I don't think we can trust them to do that. They've proven to be, you know, unaccountable private tyrannies in the past, to paraphrase one of uh, Chomsky's criticisms of, corporate power in the United States. So I think that's something that we should continue to think about. And then lastly, when it comes to the algorithmic censorship, I I think that also dovetails with the lack of transparency with content moderation, right? And so content moderators, NPR did did a great piece about this, the content moderators for Facebook, and how the, the low wages they make and the stress, the constant stress that they're under and the inability to even, you know, take multiple bathroom breaks when they need it, despite the fact that they're going through and pouring through all this difficult content. And then when it comes to transparency, like we have no idea, users, what criteria they're using exactly to determine what's legitimate speech and what's not on the platform. And similarly, with the algorithms, there's no transparency about that either. We don't know, you know, why something's being upgraded or downgraded because those are proprietary. I think it further speaks to the unaccountable nature of corporate power that functions as a form of private government. And we should continue to interrogate that. And also I I would encourage folks to to take action to to recover that kind of democratic sensibility and actually make these online spaces and other media spaces. Uh, places where uh, free speech is respected and protected. Yeah, I'll just finish by saying that I I certainly see probably the most promising route is I would hope for it's the move in direction of them being a public utility. And maybe just maybe even on the the right, there is some uh, recent movement where there might be some coalition building in that direction where that could be really possible. Well, we shall see. It would be, it would really take some work, but I, I, I hope there's more organizing that work. I certainly would want to be involved in that and you know, hope our listeners think about that as well. With that said, I want to thank you for listening to the NAB podcast. Please keep tuning in. We should have some interesting guests in the coming weeks and we will have you on the next episode. Thank you for listening.